Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Good morning and welcome to Living Better in San Diego, a public service presentation of the Intercom San Diego radio stations. I'm Susan DeVincent along with Yvonne Ermey. In studio today we have Gail Romasanta, co-author of the children's book Journey for Justice, The Life of Larry Itliong, and professor of Filipino studies at San Diego's Miramar College, Dr. Judy Pataxel. Welcome, ladies. Thank you for having us. So there are so many things for us to talk about today uh, regarding this book. Gail, I just want to say that I've not really seen a book like yours before, uh, a children's book about a historical Filipino-American figure. Thank you so much as a Filipino-American myself for giving us this Filipino-American role model. That's funny you say that, that you haven't seen one like this, because Mm -hmm. this is actually the first one of its kind. Now, Filipinos have been in the United States since 1587. I've seen other documentation that we've been here since 1583. And this is the first nonfiction illustrated children's book about Filipino-American history. And it's also the first book about Larry Itliong, the co-founder of the UFW. And so Journey for Justice, The Life of Larry Itliong, is about the life of Larry. We call him Manong Larry as an elder of our community. But he passed away in 1977, and there were at the time no books about him. And it took over 40-plus years for us to get this out to our community. And our community helped us so much. But this is about Larry, how he grew up in the Philippines, and he was very well liked. He was known as the boy who could get anything done for you. And if you needed something to happen in the village, you would go to Larry. And so he has dreams when he's younger. He has dreams that he wants to become an attorney and he wants to go to school. And he also has a dream that he wants to come to the United States. And so he tells his father that he wants to go and his father says no. But he says, I'm going anyway. So he ends up leaving. He gets on the Empress of Asia, a ship. He's the youngest person on that ship. He's 15 years old. And he comes to the United States with hopes and dreams. He has letters from his neighbors saying the United States is the best country in the whole wide world. And, and in their schools at that time, these teachers are telling him that America is wonderful because the school system there was modeled after American education system. And But when he gets here, his uncle tells him, he gets, he lands in Seattle and his uncle says, hey, can you lend me $5 because I, I'm out of work and I don't have any money and I can't make rent. So this is the first that he sees and he's absolutely gutted because as he's taking a tour of Chinatown in on King Street in Seattle, he sees all these Filipino immigrants, all these mm-hmm. Filipino men dressed nicely, but out of work and waiting for the season to start. And um, everyone's telling him, I've got calloused hands. We work really hard in the fields. And, you know, you've got university students there who are saying, you know, I had to drop out of school because we don't have any money. And I, they're all working the fields or they're bus boys or they're house boys, um, just really doing hard labor out there. So he starts organizing. And by the time we see him in 1965, September 7th, 1965, where the Filipinos voted to go 
on strike in Delano, California, to walk off the grape fields. He's already had 30-plus years of organizing and organizing for a union. And so after the Filipinos went on strike, he calls up and he talks to Cesar Chavez, and he asks for the Mexicans to join that strike, to join the strike with them, because he knew from all of his years of organizing that people had to be united, that they had to have solidarity and a united front to get their needs met. Now, let me just stop you right there, because I am understand in this part of the story, they were on opposing sides at that time. They were not united as people all fighting together, even though they had a similar cause. Were they competing for jobs or were they just not organized by the same people? In the book, we we talk about how they were historically pitted against each other and kept away from each other by the growers. And Dr. Patoxel here probably talk more about that. What was the point of of keeping them apart? It's the divide and conquer mentality. Mm -hmm. Uh, Basically, if they're divided, then and if they're not united, then they'll be able to be more controlled. They'll be able to keep the wages low and basically then be able to control the workers. Well, and then that's one of the things that Larry did, right? I, he couldn't become an attorney, but he, he almost did act like an attorney because he was fighting for their wages and for their rights and just simple things about like the terrible pesticides that they used to use, right? He was fighting just for all of their rights. Yes. And he was so successful at signing up Filipinos to join the union. And he had different ways of getting them to join the union. That's that why they sent him to Delano. He was in Stockton. He had signed up over a thousand Filipinos to join the union and um, they sent him to Delano to organize grape workers there. And so he actually knew Dolores Huerta before he knew Cesar Chavez. Wow. And so Dolores was a longtime organizer, just like Larry Itliong. And so by the time we see them in 1965, when Larry approaches Caesar, he also knows Dolores, who is also organizing with Caesar. And so they bring this up to vote to the Mexican community in a church in, I think it's Our Lady of Guadalupe, mm-hmm. in Delano, and the Mexicans voted there. And they weren't sure. Caesar said, I don't know if we have the capacity for this. I'm not sure if we can handle this strike right now. Cesar Chavez wanted to wait, actually. He said, maybe wait two years, then we'll be ready. Larry Yetliang said, you join our strike now or we will. When you go on strike, then we'll break your strike. And that's what the growers would do. They would pity the, the two groups against each other so that their strikes would not be successful. And so when... Larry Young said, join our strike now. Let's move forward together in a united way. And you'll be so much more powerful that way. Exactly. So I think that the, the Delano strikes and boycott are a very well-known movement. And they're, they're mostly known as a Chicano movement. But as you're saying, there's this whole history of Filipino involvement very early. Um, why do you think that, the, that this history isn't as well-known? Particularly here in California, because we know just of Cesar Chavez. So there's a documentary called Delano Manongs. My husband is actually the son of a Delano Manong. What happened was that the, the Manongs, Manong means older brother and in Ilocano, a Filipino term, and they were much older. The Filipinos who went on strike first, who worked the fields first, they were much older than the Mexican farm workers. And so the Mexican farm workers had more longevity in terms of beyond right. 65, whereas the Filipino migrant workers, in order to survive, because they were older, they had to go to the next town and they had to continue working for their survival. Um, and so their role in the union became less diminished. The documentary that I mentioned documents that. 
just imagine in 1965, now these these workers were already struggling financially, and it must have been terrifying for them to say, yes, I'll go on strike, knowing that they might lose their job and their livelihood. And I think, did I read in one of the articles that the, that the wage they were fighting for was $1.40 an hour? Is that correct? Yes. And to go piggyback on what Professor Judy was saying, one of the first things that I asked John when we started working on this book was like, okay, girl, you know the truth. Why have we been out of this story for so long? Yeah. And it's actually, it, it's complicated, but it also involves media. At the time, young Mexican men, workers, looked much better on camera. News crews would want to film them instead of the older population of Filipino workers, you know, so that they would pick. And and Larry would get interviewed. So his transcripts are at the United Farm Worker Archives in Detroit, Michigan at Wayne State University. And I actually went there a few weeks ago and you can actually look at all the letters. There's about 77,000 square feet of boxes there that they have that you can go through and actually look through all of this. There are transcripts. And Larry was assistant director and Cesar Chavez was director. And so they have all the minutes there and all the meetings, but he would get interviewed, but journalists would shelve his interview and they would not use it for major news stories or major media. Well, we're going to change that today, I hope. Uh, Gail, it has to be rewarding for you, though, writing this book and highlighting somebody who was just kind of left out of history. And it was such an important part of history for Filipino Americans, but just in general for something that changed so many people's lives and is really honestly still an issue today, especially here in California. I think for us, we just hear more about the Hispanic community because we're so close to the border. And those are a lot of the people that are coming here. They're in those fields. And even today, they're still fighting for those rights. But now this book because of your highlighting this topic, it's amazing. It's almost like you're creating this history that nobody knew about before, and now it's in the University of Michigan. It's in incredible colleges, UCLA, taught at San Francisco State, of course, Judy at Miramar College as well. And that curriculum now is available along with your book? Mm-hmm. For free. So anybody can download it at bridgedelta.com or behind the organization, the nonprofit organization, Panay Panoy Educational Partnerships. And Dr. Allison Tintianco Cabales is known in the ethnic studies. She actually was one of the chairs for the ethnic studies curriculum writing team for the state of California. And she's a big powerhouse and so knowledgeable and an expert in education. She's also a professor at San Francisco State University. Yes. And her and her master teachers, uh, there were four of them um, that came together and put together a beautiful curriculum for anybody to use or parents to, to look at. They can look at vocabulary words. They can they can understand that instead of thinking of farm workers as poor and uneducated, they were determined and dignified. I mean, yes. those are the words that we're using to describe this kind of work, right. describe this kind of struggle. Yeah, that was one of the things that I was going to ask you is how did you hope to influence people's perception of what they call unskilled labor in this book? So this was an intention to really kind of shift a perception. Do you think Filipino Americans or Filipinos uh, embrace this part of their history or are proud of their, this part of their history? I think they don't know it. Right. Now, I straddled two different 
Filipino-American worlds. My family on my mom's side has been here since the 30s, and we had a farm. And we were here, and we were raised by Manongs. I was surrounded by Manongs. Don and I would talk a lot about that we were the last generation to know what it felt like to be surrounded by Manongs. So Manongs were that wave of Filipinos, um, the Filipino men who came here as farm labor. And so I knew that side, which was absolutely American by the time we got here. Mm -hmm. And they were farmers. They were river people raising bunny rabbits and killing goats. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And absolutely, you know, just really tough. Some of the toughest men, family members we had, we have, Don and I would laugh. There's a thing called the Elecano knife. Mm-hmm. Every man who's from, of Elecano descent will always have a knife in his pocket ready to either <laughs> open something That's so funny. or to get an animal or yeah. to defend themselves. Right. Um, wow. And so the Monongs were tough. Mm-hmm. It's so funny because when we were talking about this, Andre Sabayan, which we call Dre, and we've all been friends for over 20 years, he started laughing and he's Elecano and he said, you guys are not going to believe this and he showed us his Elecano knife and he's he fishes a lot and so it's for fishing it's for opening mail so in any case I knew that world that wave that generation of Filipinos but we were immigrants Mm -hmm. and my mom came here as a doctor so I knew a very immigrant reality also an immigrant population that didn't know nor identify with the wave of Filipinos that actually came here in the 20s and 30s or earlier and so I knew both worlds right but what a lot of people don't know a lot of Filipinos don't know, and Don taught me this, that if your parents came here as nurses or doctors, and you know, and if you tell yourself, this doesn't apply to me, this is not my history. Right. In many, many cases, those monongs who were here in the United States actually sent home money to their family members so that their family members could go back to school to become nurses and doctors. Wow. And so we are all connected to this history because more likely, more often than not, your family received Manong money. And so this is your history. But it's also American history. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and sometimes it's really hard for marginalized communities to accept that they're at, they're at the center of American history and they have a really powerful narrative. And it's hard to accept that. It's like, why me? Why, you know, I don't want to cause any waves. We weren't at the center of this. And so it's almost a revolutionary act to say, yes, I am American history. I'm at the center of this history. And I'm so proud of my community. As Americans, we weren't there at the signing of the Constitution. And we weren't there physically at the signing of these contracts in 1970 with the growers. But it is all still American history and pivotal American moments that I hope that if Filipinos do not know this history, I hope they claim it because it is American history. You know what I was going to say that I, I agree with you. I think a lot of Filipinos don't know that history. Like I, I didn't know that history until I saw a movie, an autobiographical movie about um, Cesar Chavez that came out in 2014. And they show the Filipino strikers, the farm workers there. And uh, my mother, who immigrated here in the 80s, I told her, I said, have you seen this movie about Cesar Chavez? Because the Filipinos are in it. Right. And she had no idea idea. And then she wanted to go see that movie and to the, learn about that. Right. And so that movie, the Diego Luna directed. Yes. So that movie is interesting because the only scene where you see Filipinos is that they're scared. In reality, they were very, very tough. Like I said, that Ilocano knife. 
Mm-hmm. And so they were a little <laughs> bit at odds with Cesar Chavez because they were very militant and they did not necessarily believe in peaceful protest. Well, right. as you pointed out earlier, they were also kind of on opposite sides. Right. But I like that they learned to come together and put that aside because they're more powerful as a union of one. Right. Listen, we're a nation of immigrants, too. So even hearing that, that they're immigrants, this is what this country's built on. But Filipinos, is it true, are the largest Asian population now in the state of California? Is that true? Yes. Um, the largest Asian American ethnic group in the state of California, as well as in the county of San Diego. Throughout the United States, we're also the third largest. So definitely our history needs to be told, our contributions. My father is actually Ilocano, and he came and was Ilocano, he's passed, but he came in the 19, late 1920s, served our country in World War II. So even that history also needs to be told. And thanks to Gail's book, thanks to legislature that was passed in part by the leadership of Assemblymember Rob Bonto, the first Filipino-American in the state assembly, finally our history, our contributions to the United States is going to be in the curriculum in the state of California, where we are the largest Asian-American ethnic group. So how rewarding is that for you then to be able to teach that? Yvonne, how rewarding for you to be able to read a book like this when you never had somebody like this as an example for you when you were growing up. And Gail, how rewarding for you. I saw an interview with you and your daughter, Ruby. Your daughter, Ruby, was reading a passage from the book. I mean, how old is she? She's 14. 14. But I mean, you could see in her eyes that this is like a generation that knew nothing about this. And by the way, she was very poised and lovely. And I think it probably meant so much to her, not only that she's very proud of you, but to learn this history. People like to know their own Mm -hmm. history and the contributions that they've made to the world, and that should not be set aside. So it's just an incredible thing that you're doing with this book, and I'm so excited that it's going to be in schools now, and people are going to learn this very important story. Thank you, and it's been a real journey for us as well. It's been really community-wide that we have absolutely put together this campaign, that we put together this book. When we were creating this book and we had feedback and we probably rewrote this 25 to 30 times and we did it on Google Docs going back and forth. And I remember I was I didn't want to tell Dawn, but while we were going back and forth, I was actually in the hospital in labor (laughs) with the the twins. And I didn't want her to worry about me, but it was talk about a hard worker, you know, but it was deadline. And I was like, "Okay, Dawn, um, it's deadline today. Do you have your draft? And and so that's. Oh, hold on. I'm having another contraction. I I did not want to tell her. I did not want to tell her I was there uh, because I was like, well, then maybe she won't get me that draft. (laughs) So you were calling her to ask her to turn in her on her deadline. Yeah, because we would go back and forth. We would go back and forth um, rewriting and editing. And so we had this book vetted by students, by our own kids, by our family members, by children's librarians. We actually had a teacher look it over and make sure it was Common Core aligned with the state of California. We had professors. We had the UFW journalists um, who were covering the UFW in the 1960s. We also had all the images here of Cesar Chavez had to be approved by the Cesar Chavez family. Foundation. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of minds that were coming together in here and a lot of academics also. And for a children's book, this has to be probably the best researched a children's book because Don could not 
find this in a book. There was no book. She actually had to go and go to the UFW archives. She had to, as a professional historian, to city offices, to county offices, to go find documentation, genealogy. She had to knit it all together. Um, And she had to go through photographs and and meetings. Mm -hmm. So this really was so much on, on her research, but also brought into reality by our community because we did an Indiegogo campaign as well. And they funded this book and we were able to have some money for the next books in the series about Filipino American leaders. And um, we were able to do that and also fund the teacher's guide and then with Fonz. And we have a lot, a lot of partners on this national tour throughout the United States. So I really feel like it is a total united concerted effort that we have been all as a community trying to push this history because no one else has. And I know I feel like we need to control this narrative because we have been left out far too long. Yes. We keep referring to this as a children's book, and it is a children's book, but it's not just a children's book. Like you were saying, all of the research and the vetting um, that's gone into this, and it's a really beautiful book if people could see it. But you talk about, you know, included in the Filipino American experience, like we talk about the Delano boycott and this and that, but there's so much more in there aside from that. Like you talk about the Filipino Repatriation Act and arriving in Stockton, going to Alaska and working in the canneries there. Right. So, I mean, it's a full experience. It's, it was very strategic to make sure that you could teach this. Mm-hmm. By the way, when we say a children's book, we're not really talking about very, very small children. People are going to think there's you know, three words on a page. It's not no. that no. at all. Are you talking about middle school kids? So we've actually had parents come up to us and tell us they've been reading this to their children who are as young as six. I was in Davis, California, teaching this book at Cesar Chavez Elementary School, which is a Spanish immersion school. I actually was teaching it to kindergartners, wow. K through six. Um, but I just go through the pictures when they're younger, and yeah. I know certain points in history that I point out. But it it is at a very accessible reading level. Mm-hmm. Yes. But it's very dense. There's lots of words in there, and there's a lot of history. Dawn had to put her research in there. You know, a percentage of the profits of the book, too, are donated to Little Manila Rising and the Filipino National Historical Society. Yes. Um, Can you tell us, by the way, a little bit more about the history and the significance of Little Manila Rising? So Little Manila Rising is based out of Stockton, California. And I was raised in Stockton. I left to go find myself as an artist and a writer, and I came back. I love being at home and coming back home. I'm absolutely Stockton at my heart. And Dawn and Executive Director Dylan Delvo, who is still there, they created this. They created this nonprofit so that they could save the remaining buildings in Stockton, California that was once Little Manila. And this is where the people would go and live and it was supported by the community? This is where Filipinos lived and in many places in California, Filipinos could only live in places like historic Filipino town, Mm -hmm. in Little Manila's. If they Mm -hmm. had left those areas, they would get beat up or they would, violence would come upon them. And to go back to Little Manila, they saved the last remaining three buildings and it, it is now a historic location for the city of Stockton and, and and now they have an after school program they introduce ethnic studies and support it in Stockton they gave these books to every school in Stockton and they're all about social justice and teaching the next generation ethnic studies and they loved Dawn at the Cesar Chavez Foundation a few months before she passed she actually went there and told them about the book 
they have loved her. She is hard not to love because she was such a connecting and such a force of nature. Right, mm-hmm. Judy? It's probably something that then that a lot of people there didn't know. I mean, he's long since gone. Did a lot of people then in that organization not know this story either? I think some people don't know this story. As I mentioned, I have taught this curriculum at Miramar College, and we had an ethnic studies professor come from one of our sister campuses, and I showed the film Delina Manong's, and she said, you know, I didn't know this history, and she taught Chicano studies. So it's not always known, so that's why this is so important. You had asked about FONS. FONS is the Filipino-American National Historical Society, and bringing it back to Stockton, we do now have a national museum in Stockton, California, just down the street from Little Manila. FONS is a national organization with now 36 chapters throughout the United States, and we are the organization that actually started October as Filipino-American History Month. And the reason is there is documented evidence of Filipinos landing in what is now Morro Bay, California, back in the 1500s. So we have technically been here for over 400 years. Wow. I wanted to ask, how did Stockton become such an epicenter, a Filipino cultural epicenter? And that's part of why our museum is there. It's because that was the hub of where Filipinos would come in terms of contracts for the migrant workers. Um, My father actually came in the late 1920s. He worked the fields. He worked the Alaskan canneries. But there is also this misperception that, that those Filipino men, they were skilled laborers, but that they didn't have education. Many of them did. My father came here for the purpose of getting a master's degree. But because of the Great Depression and because of racism, he was not allowed to do that. He worked the fields with that education. But Stockton was the hub where many Filipinos who came and first immigrated, that they knew that they would be able to connect with work, connect with other Filipinos that that came from the Philippines to find places where they can work, whether it would be going up to Seattle and then on to Alaska to the canneries. Filipinos, the hub of Stockton, California, was where largest number of Filipinos at one time in the United States were. And before we run out of time, I just want to mention, too, now... The world is getting to know about Larry Itliong because we have a day that celebrates him. Yes. (laughs) So October 25th is Larry Itliong Day. Um, Governor Brown recognized that. It is his actual birthday, and we are proud to have at Miramar College celebrate Larry Itliong Day and bring Gail to the college so that she can basically feature her book, Journey for Justice, The Life of Larry Itliong. Well, for anybody that would like to get the book or would like to get a copy of the curriculum, the curriculum guide, any teachers listening, this is a fantastic story to share with your students. Again, to find the book, where do we go? You can go to bridgedelta.com and you can download for free the teacher's guide, also known as the curriculum guide. Mm -hmm. You can get the book and you can get other children's books there. And you can also see some of our pictures or some of the videos at at bridgedelta.com. And you can also get it on Amazon. So you can get Journey for Justice, The Life at Larry Itliong, but definitely for the free teacher's guide, bridgedelta.com. And your earlier books too, right? Yes, and my earlier books also. Beautiful Eyes. Yes. Beautiful Eyes, a bilingual English Tagalog books that teaches children and their caregivers who read this book how beautiful they are. I I love that idea. Gail, earlier I mentioned that I saw an interview with you and your daughter, and your daughter read a passage from the book, which you say is your favorite. Mm -hmm. Can you share that with us today? Larry had a decision to make. 
Should he take the free ticket and go back to San Nicolas? He closed his eyes and imagined the waterfalls and the green mountains of his quiet village. He thought of his parents and his childhood sweetheart. Larry began to write a letter to his childhood friend. I'm sorry, but I'm not coming home, he wrote. His heart felt heavy as he explained that he had a new dream. He was staying in America. He wanted to be a labor organizer, someone who inspired his fellow workers to join together into a union that fights for their rights. Larry wasn't sure if he would ever become a lawyer, but he could still help people get justice. He was going to stay. Thank you for creating that visual for us. I just have to give a big thank you to Assemblymember Rob Bonta. He created the perfect storm for these conditions for us to be able to talk about and to validate our history here. He actually was a history major for his undergraduate degree, and then he went to Yale to get his law degree. And so he's an assembly member in Northern California in Alameda. And he is our first Filipino-American assembly member in the state of California. And he wrote the bill, Assembly Bill 123. When you talk about Cesar Chavez or the farm labor movement, you must talk about the Filipino immigrants who are part of that movement and the other immigrant um, communities that were also part of that movement. And that is for public schools. So that is written out for K through 12. When you talk about this history, you need to talk about Filipinos who contributed to it. So that was signed by Governor Brown in 2013. And AB7, which Governor Brown signed in 2015, makes it so that K through 12 public schools celebrate Larry Itliong Day here in, in California. So if it wasn't for that, for these bills and that validation to say, this is the truth, we are telling the yes. truth, this is our history. And Dolores Huerta also lobbied for AB 123 to be passed. Um, if it wasn't for that, we might not have this book today. And also for ethnic studies. If there wasn't a fight for ethnic studies, we would not have this book. And so I am so grateful for those events that happened and for us to be able to create this dialogue in this book. And how beautiful for young Filipino American kids growing up to be able to read that story and know that history, their history. Okay, so I just want to thank you both again for educating us on Larry Itliong and this often overlooked part of Filipino-American legacy. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. That's it for this episode of Living Better in San Diego. To revisit this or any other past episodes, visit any of our local radio.com websites and search Living Better San Diego. On behalf of Yvonne Ermi and myself, Sue DeVincent, we appreciate you spending your Sunday morning with us. Have a great week and let's catch up again for Living Better in San Diego next Sunday. The opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the opinions and views of the staff and management of the Intercom San Diego radio stations. Episodes of Living Better in San Diego are available on this station's website. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com.